You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Humans have been weaving fabric for around 27,000 years. Similarly, basketry is one of our oldest skills, with the oldest known baskets so far discovered at Fayum in Egypt, which have been carbon dated to around 10,000 BC. Yet as an art form, textiles and fibres has a somewhat chequered history, having been marginalised and excluded from the realms of fine art, largely because it was associated with women and often reflected non-Western artistic traditions. But in the mid-20th century, Bauhaus émigré Annie Albers began to change how textiles and weaving were perceived, leading the textile and weaving design program at Black Mountain College and inspiring a new generation of fibre artists whose work dissolved the borders between craft, fine art and design. And it was in 1947 in Colombia that a group of fibre artists came together to form the Colombia Weavers Guild. Now, at that time, the guild specialised in weaving alone. But today, the Colombia Weavers and Spinners Guild embraces a cross-section of the fibre arts from knitting, dyeing and felting to papermaking, basket weaving and all manner of surface design. A couple of weeks ago on the show, I said that I could not think of any other arts organisation that had been around longer than the Columbia Art League. Well, this week I stand corrected. The Columbia Weavers Guild predates the Columbia Art League by 12 years. And here to tell us more about the Guild and the programmes it supports is basket weaver Anne McGinnity and fibre artist Paula McFarling. Welcome to the show, Anne and Paula. Thank you. Thank you. So it is wonderful to see so many thriving arts organisations in Columbia these days and it's easy to forget that a tiny handful have been round for a very long time so tell me a little bit more about the origin story and the history of the guild Paula well the guild as you said it started in the late 40s and you needed to be invited to join the guild and you also needed to be a weaver it was only a weaver's guild and so they were very particular about who could join and um I hear stories about white gloves and fancy <laughs> refreshments, and, and it was quite the ladies' club, except they were all very serious weavers. And I was lucky enough to meet some of them when I first joined the Guild many years ago. And, um, and they were very serious about their art form also. So some of the founders you had, Lois Watkins, I yes. think, was one of the early members. Vera mm-hmm. Mott, uh-huh. right, whose husband, I think, was a big professor at the university in the School of English and Journalism. Mm-hmm. And so they had get-togethers and tea parties and, and weaving. And did they sell their art? Where no. was it shown? No, they were doing it. They were making it for themselves, their family and their friends. And they were really determined to improve their quality and to investigate how to get more complicated in their weaving structures. Do you think they were influenced by that change in the mid-20th century of Annie Albers and these these women textile artists that were suddenly blurring those lines? Oh, I, I'm sure there were. And there was a, there have been quite uh, periods of resurgence of, of textile fiber arts where it's been popular and a lot of people have done it and investigated it. It's not, it's not just rug weaving, but but they are textiles, so most of them are functional. Uh, some of them are 
to hang on the wall. It's decorative. But there was a resurgence there in the 40s. Annie Albers certainly was a big part of that. And then it died down for a while. And then in the 60s, uh, weaving became popular again. And then it was that back to the land sort of weaving with rough hand-spun wool and (laughs) macrame. (laughs) And... uh, And now it's turned into, it's, it's much more refined, and there are many different kinds. I mean, weaving is my, my special area, so it warms my heart to talk about weaving. There are many areas now, and now there are a lot of hand weavers will have computerized looms. They still are doing the hand weaving, but what the computer does is it helps to make more complex designs where you can only draw so much on graph paper and transfer that to how you're going to manipulate it on the loom. And so now, because we have computers, now we can do more designing with the computers also. So that's made a lot of changes in how people look, how weavers look at weaving. Is that the same in the world of basketry, Anne? Do you use computer programs too? Yes and no. And most of us do. Um, It's a hands-on type of thing. We do have some people that have complicated twill patterns. And if uh, I've gone to conferences where there'll be a group of people working on a twill pattern, and there's like deadly silence around them where maybe the rest of us are working with willow and we have natural material and the people that are working on complicated designs are very focused and it's as Paula said it becomes it it goes in waves it becomes complex we have a lot of uh, basket weavers now that do things um, that are more decorative rather than functional and recently in Columbia in the last two years we had a lovely basket show that showed the as you mentioned like a lot of work Uh, ethic went with basketry and so you could sort of trace economic conditions by what baskets were being made and then in the 70s is when a lot of breakout contemporary baskets were being made and so a lot of basketry now is sometimes used with building materials or found objects and there's still a lot of natural materials used but again it goes in waves and like what we do in the guild is like we find different groups of people that want to study certain things and like with the weavers the loom weavers we have several different study groups and so if you want to do something that's a complex weave there's a group for you if you want to do historical weaves there's a group for you if you want to do contemporary or focus more on color and so in and with basketry it's a sort of the same thing where uh, if what I what I like natural materials and so if I want to do that there's a group for me and so so and that's part of the value of the guild is that it's as you mentioned it's like ongoing learning for all of us there's also uh, what's been popular maybe 10 years 15 years felting mm. has become a very popular fiber art mm. I know Anne's involved in the felting mm. The felting group of the guild. Well, and part of what we have again, and I'm going to sort of segue into some other aspects of the guild, is that we have study groups, and like we have a felters group, and we have several women that actually produce the fiber. And um, we have a sale coming up this weekend. It's starting today, and we will have people that have produced their fiber. They have alpacas. They have little goats. We used to have people that had bunnies, but we don't have that right now. And so one has to do something with all that material. So then the felters, and we actually have some 
some people in our guild that have taught internationally. And we have a lot of people that will teach classes. Anne Mays is going to be teaching a class uh, in Fulton. And she uh, raises alpacas, Alpacas de Avaz. And she will be able to help people weave rugs and things like that. And so a good time to come out to the sale is to meet the makers of the things that are being produced. And like with Paula, we'll be at the sale. And so if you want to buy a rug from Paula, she will be able to help you and tell you what would go well in a certain area because she's familiar with it. Anne Mays will be able to tell you about the rugs that she makes so and that's what we're looking for like people that want to come in see handcrafted materials learn the maker it's all locally made and it's again that type of economic tradition where our dollars stay locally one thing I really like about our exhibition this weekend is that we have demonstrations, and those are so important in the community for children, but also for adults. I had co-workers a few years ago who came out, and they were thrilled to see someone working a loom. Mm-hmm. Or we have different members of our guild at different times, so we can't really say who'll be there when, but we'll have weavers and loom weavers and basket makers and felters. And we may have a spinner. We may we have people that do beadwork while they're sitting there and waiting we have we have people that come out with their knitting and crochet issues and because we will have a knitter and or crocheter at hand we have a lot of people that produce things that one didn't know that they needed like little things for your soap and oh and so we have a lot of handmade items and we have household as well as personal wear We'll we'll come back to this sale a little bit later on, but I wanted to focus a little bit more on the Guild because Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed looking through your amazing website this Mm -hmm. week. You have so much great information on there. And what I was really impressed by was the number of grants that you have available. So first of all, tell me a little bit about Werner Wolferkammer because you have a Werner Wolferkammer Memorial Trust and you give out grants four times a year to members of the Guild or also to people from beyond the Guild. Tell us a little bit about who Werner Wolferkammer was. She was a professor at the university, and she was a weaver. And she, because she was in education, that was near and dear to her heart. And so when she passed away, she gave money to the library and to the university and to the Weavers Guild, all as a pot. And to the Art League, Mm -hmm. too. Oh, (laughs) And all, all a pot of money to gain interest, and then the interest for the Guild, the interest we use to grant scholarships. And I think it's three times a year. Four times. Four times a year Mm -hmm. that people can apply to get a scholarship. And it's and they can be personal scholarships as well as like a lot of times we will bring people to town and so that people want to learn like last year we had a tablet weaving workshop or earlier this year actually we had a tablet weaving workshop with John Malarkey from St. Louis and we've often brought felters to town we had uh, somebody come from Turkey who when we were doing felted rugs which is physical labor to make those So those scholarships and those gifts benefit the lifelong learning for an individual in several different forms. And that's what we are, is that we're a group of people that want to learn more. And so, again, the study groups are really important within the Guild, the scholarships, and uh, we have a lot of people that invest in different ways. And you have, so you have the Werner Wolferkammer Memorial Mm -hmm. Trust, which gives out grants four times a year, but you also have an educational scholarship program. Mm -hmm. How does that differ from the Memorial Trust? It's a pot of money that changes all the time, and there's it's not it's not a large sum where we use the interest. We just use whatever is in that pot. And because the Vernon Wolfacomer Fund, if you're an officer, you cannot tap into that money. So the scholarship fund is available to anyone 
in the guild, and it's only available to guild members, where the Wolfelcomer Fund is available to people outside of the community if they have some type of interest in a, in the fiber arts that they would like to explore. Now, both of those scholarships and grants, what you learn, if it's an individual or group, you are, I hate to say required, but yes, required to share that with the other members of the group so that this lifelong learning continues and it expands. And that's a that's a wonderful part. If someone goes to a, a conference and learns something, then they come back to the guild and they share that either as a guild program or with one of the study groups. So with the Werner Wolfhammer Fund, I mean, anybody in the community or beyond? They can apply for that, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that maybe to bring somebody in to create a class, or it might be for themselves right. to go somewhere? That, or mm-hmm. like part of what we do, this coming spring, we're going to have another youth art exhibit, and it's going to be down at the uh, Columbia Public Library, and so I'm sure that we'll have a lot of people see that. And we've been doing that off and on for many years. And so the schools that are, the, the art teachers have already been informed, and so we have, I think, something like 10 schools enrolled in it and um, so all of these little weavers will make projects and up, up to 30 students in every school are allowed to enter and so we will have that would be one of the things that they will apply for funds and then that fund would be able to present prizes for the winners and ribbons and we used to make all the ribbons for that thing and now we I don't think we do that anymore we purchase some of those but anyway so that enables our guild to promote lifelong learning with younger people it gives uh, art teachers some support again throughout the county and so that is one of the use of the funds for example over the time that you've been doing that have you seen the fashion change in what kids want to learn from you know weaving felting dyeing does it go in cycles Yes, but also I would also say it's just like with the loom being set up this weekend for Saturday and Sunday, and people are, will come out and sit down there. Children are often more fearless than adults when they sit at the loom, which I think is sort of interesting. And often there will be one person out of every 10 that sits below the loom to see how the whole thing works. And so the children will be looking at things, and felting became popular. Basketry goes through cycles, and it just depends on what children are, or like if a school is putting in different plants, if they're putting in a garden, like now with the CCUA, I'm sure that part of that's going to come back too. Is that like if we have plants available that children can use to either use for dyeing or weaving or that type of thing? We're fortunate in Columbia and the surrounding area that many of our art and teachers are well educated, are very versatile, and so they have a broad educational background. And so they're bringing that to the children as well. Well, particularly if they've been through the art education program at Mizzou with so many wonderful artists and teachers that are involved in that program. Mm -hmm. One of the other grants that I really love uh, that you do as a non-profit organization, we all rely on people volunteering their time, many of whom do phenomenal work and go largely unsung. So I love that you have a service appreciation award. So tell Mm -hmm. us about that and some of the people who have won that over the years or been granted it rather. One of our past members, Amy Preckshot, decided that it would be a grand idea to congratulate people who spend a lot of time and energy with the Guild. And um, I'm very proud to have been the first recipient of that award. We've only granted it two years now. It's a new, it's a new award. So it was amazing to me to see the list of things I had done for the Guild over 30 years. I mean, it was wow, I do love the Guild, and I did spend a lot of time with it. And uh, and all I've made wonderful f- friends through that, and I've learned so much. And uh, it was such a nice gift for them to give to me. And I went to a conference in Nevada, a big international conference, and came back with a lot of wonderful information. And it was 
a weaving conference for textiles uh-huh. generally. Yeah, it was mainly textile by the Hand Weavers Guild of America. And uh, they have wonderful conferences. They call it Convergence every two years. The next one will be in Tennessee, which is mm-hmm. pretty close to us considering they're all over the North America. Well, and Amy Prickshot, as an example of one of the members, part of why she set this up is that she's 106 now, I think it is. And she, when she mm-hmm. was in her, I think her late 70s, early 80s, she bought a 24 harness loom, one of the looms that requires a computer to use it. And she, speaking of investment in her her learning and her others, she did not start weaving until she, I think she was 54. And she published a book of her patterns, which was just phenomenal. And she, she is very intent that we have quality weaving and that's part of why she the award and that's Paula isn't going to say this but Paula is that sort of supporter also that she wants people to learn and so that's what her impetus was with Amy Preckshot's impetus was people need to be encouraged to learn and to learn at a higher level and those the large conference that Paula went to is the high level and they give out stunning awards for stunning work so congratulations Paula thank you (laughs) (laughs) well and Amy was a she was ahead of her time as mm-hmm. far as weaving and doing felt in handwoven clothing. But mm-hmm. people in the community might know her for her animals. She did handwoven stuffed animals out of handwoven fabric. Every Some year was cool a ones and animal. wacky ones. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so was she there at the start in 1947? No, when, no. no. I remember when I joined the guild in uh, 1982. She said, "Oh, I've only been a weaver for 12 years. I'm one of the new weavers in the group." <laughs> So this weekend, you have your 30th annual holiday exhibition and sale at the Boone History and Culture Centers. Tell us a little bit about some of the featured artists that you have there who are in the Guild. Well, as we've already said, like Paula is going to bring weavings, and so she'll be there. And we have a list of about 20-some people. And let me talk about some of the fiber, and then that'll bring me into the people. And so, uh, as I've already mentioned, Anne Mays is going to be there, and she's going to bring... If you're a knitter or a spinner, Anne Mays' Angora fiber is fabulous. And so is Linda Coates. Linda Coates is a prolific person. She's part of the group that I'm not sure when she sleeps, because she produces voluminous amounts of things. And She's part of a felters group, and so they felt things like her. This year, one of her ornaments is a little felted llama with its own little coat knitted around it, and it's a darling thing. And uh, Linda is one of those people that does not produce one. She produces 20 to 50 of something, and she knits and crochets quite a bit. And then we also have, like, Candace Blyes, who does a lot of hats. We have Meg Bartlett, who also, she's another person who produces fiber. She has some sheep, and so she's been doing a lot of felting. Susan Burpo does some uh, very elegant towels, and we have a lot of people that are very interested in color. And towels are one of those things where I have an addiction to Starbucks coffee, and I also have an addiction to the towels at the sale at the Weavers and Spinners Guild. I myself can weave towels, but my towels are not nearly as exquisite as the ones that I can buy at the sale. And when you say towels, I'm thinking I mean, things kitchen, you have in the bathroom. Nope, oh. kitchen towels primarily. And, and so people use them as table runners also. Yes. Okay. And what they do is they actually get softer and better through, with use through the years. And once... Once I started using these towels, they take the place of everything else. And you so dry the dishes with them? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. yes. Or you just hang them in your kitchen to be pretty, mm-hmm. but you're yes. supposed to use them. <laughs> <laughs> we encourage people to use them because they're yeah. co- the, we make them so that they're absorbent yes. and they don't leave lint and they're beautiful. What are they made of? 
cotton. Primarily cotton. cotton. Okay. Mm-hmm. I like yeah. linen for. Uh-huh. Well, we do. Have oh, well, some we have some linen ones too. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and we depends also, on what people are making. Right. Making any any one year, and also the towels. That's where people. Um, that's our most popular item. Yes. There's a run when we open on Friday night. There's a run toward the towel yes. rack. Have you already put your pre-purchases in, Anne? Well, no, because I, I tend to buy anywhere from five to ten towels a year, and I keep a back stock because if I'm using a Jenny Wallace towel, I want to make sure I have another one to back it up that's pristine. And so mm-hmm. and so like with Paula McFarlane. So I have a towel from every weaver that's Me been too. in the guild, mm-hmm. yes. And so some of those I use, some of them I do not. And the other thing that's fascinating about it is that there are so many colors and textures. So if you have a room that is coral and turquoise we have got a towel for you if you have something that's all autumnal colors we have got seven towels for you and so that's part of it and so the next bestseller i think are our scarves we usually have walls and racks of scarves and we have the scarves in all different shapes and sizes we have everything from silk wool cotton uh, they're knitted they're crocheted they're felted. dyed they're felted mm-hmm. yeah so we have a run on scarves, and I think it's going to be a winter where we're going to need something around our neck, and so I'm. That's on my list of things to look for this weekend. And we are our own best customers. Back to the scholarships. This past year, we had a silk dyer come in from St. Louis, yes. and uh, she did a workshop for us, and it lit my fire. And so I have bought silk blanks, and I've been dyeing them with leaves and flowers. And so it's a great process, and it takes many, many hours. You can't do it in one day. And But I love the finished product because, mm-hmm. because I can see the walnut leaves from my yard and the pin oak leaves, and they're all scattered around, and the scarf is brown with all these leaf imprints, and it's... It's exciting. You never know what you're going to get from that process, too. I love that you're just shining as you're telling yes. me these stories <laughs> about the process yeah. and how wonderful it is. Yeah. It's our passion. That's mm-hmm. that's. And I started the Guild Cell 30 years ago, and part of the reason was because you only have so many friends and family members, and after a while you just have too many things. <laughs> and, and so how- we decided to make them available to the community. Well, we have members that join, and how it, the progression often is is that they weave something for themselves, or they take a class at Access Arts, or when the weaving store was here, they would take a class and they would weave something, and that would, and then they would weave another thing, and then they'd start giving towels as gifts, and they would eventually get to the place where they could feel like they could part with their towels at the sale, and then what happens is that all the other weavers know what it takes to make that twill design, and so we snap those things up, and so it's very rewarding again to see we have a lot of people who have creative ideas and those ideas as it does in the art league it sort of percolates through and you you learn by doing so they the show starts this evening at 5 30 and that's open to everybody it's an opening reception but you don't have to have got a ticket or anything anybody can come down to that it's our whole weekend is free and we also give away door prizes every half hour and so which have been little creative things that our our membership has made and then um so there'll be a little bit of food and drink there tonight and then uh tomorrow saturday our hours are nine to four and we're open for that and that's when we're going to have demonstrations 
demonstrations and so we really encourage people to come out with their family it's also it's going to be a nice day so walking around the grounds will be as well too and then sunday we're only going to be there for a short while so if you haven't bought it you do need to rush in on sunday but what from what you're saying if people are serious about buying they probably should be there this evening because <laughs> only one of everything i mean apart that's from it. people to make 20 of things no, but but there is only one and it's like paula's mm-hmm. scarves there is one of that scarf so don't delay mm-hmm. thank you so much to my first act guests today members of the columbia weavers and spinners guild Anne mcginnity and paula mcfarling the guild's 30th annual holiday exhibition and sale has its opening reception tonight from 5 30 to 8 p.m at the boone history and culture center before opening again on saturday from 9 till 4 and sunday from 11 till 3 and there is no cost to attend and plenty of space to park thank you so much Anne and paula thank, thank you, you diana you're listening to speaking of the arts on 89.5 fm kopn columbia and after a short break we'll be peeking behind the theatrical curtain once again to find out what's happening at this weekend's starting gate new play festival don't wander off welcome back to speaking of the arts In 2004, a book about storytelling was published called The Seven Basic Plots, Why We Tell Stories. Written by British newspaper columnist and founder of the satirical Private Eye magazine, Christopher Booker, it had taken him 34 years to write. And in its 700 densely packed pages, he theorised that there are only seven basic plots in the whole world and that these plots are recycled again and again in novels, movies, plays and operas. His seven plots are Overcoming the Monster, Think Jaws, Rags to Riches, Cinderella, The Quest, Lord of the Rings, Voyage and Return, Alice in Wonderland, Rebirth, Groundhog Day, Comedy, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. The book was revelatory to some, but it also came in for a lot of criticism. Booker's inspiration was the Swiss psychiatrist Jung and the idea that in all of the stories we tell, our hero is looking to become whole. Whether that resonates with you or not, every playwright who sits down to sculpt a story has to create a dramatic arc that holds the audience's interest. There needs to be an introduction, a conflict and a resolution. This weekend at Talking Horse Theatre, they are giving the stage to three local playwrights, each of whom was selected through a competitive process to create two 10-minute plays for an annual showcase of local playwriting talent called the Starting Gate New Play Festival. The festival is now in its fifth year, and here to tell us more about it are Talking Horse Productions Artistic Director, Adam Bretsky, one of the festival's directors, John Bolton, and one of the playwrights, Kyle Beckerdahl. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm curious if any of you had come across the seven story plot ideas before and whether you think we can boil all of literature, theatre and opera down to just seven broad stroke plots. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. When you first brought that up, I remembered I heard those seven plots at some point and I couldn't remember what they all were. I also remember at some point they broke them down into just three. It was man versus man, man versus environment and man versus some other foe. But yeah, it, it is kind of funny how all the stories kind of cycle and you know the truth be told I think if you circumnavigate some of those plot tropes people kind of walk out going like I didn't like that at all (laughs) (laughs) Kyle when you've been playwriting does that that resonate with you do you feel like you're looking at one of these seven basic plots yeah most of those during my time as an undergrad and master's student in creative writing programs they force you they 
really just put your nose to that page and be like, read these and never do those. <laughs> and you can't escape it, but it's the idea is, like you said, circumventing them, but doing it tastefully and doing it in a way to entertain is really my ultimate goal. So And I doing it in a way that maybe the audience doesn't realize that they're listening to the same seven stories over and over. <laughs> Building some surprise into it, maybe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the Starting Gate New Play Festival, you start with multiple playwrights submitting a script. And then what happens, Adam? Yeah, so this is actually the second year that we have done it in a different process. So before, in previous years, we had just recruited playwrights. Um, in the past two years, what we've done is we've asked playwrights to submit some of their own work. Uh, from those submissions, we have kind of a double-blind uh, selection process. We have a committee on our board that reads through all the selections, and from there, they get together and they vote on the best three playwrights. Then we contact those three playwrights, and we give them a very simple prompt. Usually it's just two words. This year our prompt is win, lose. Uh, from there, they're allowed to write whatever play that they want. We workshop them three times a year, uh, so they get three opportunities to present those to people that might act in them or just other community members, and it's uh, it's the Wild West. People can give feedback about the plays in whatever fashion that they want. Some notes that they take, some notes that they say, no, you're wrong, and let me prove to you why. Uh, and then the result is, in October, they pick directors, the playwrights get together and they pick directors, the directors then cast the shows, and then the actors have a month to rehearse, and then finally perform them starting tonight. Now, when they submit their initial scripts, those scripts aren't what is used. You just choose their ability from those scripts. That's right. What, do you, what are you looking for initially? You know, it's it really depends. Um, we are looking for people who can tell good stories. So maybe it's just who can tell those seven stories the best that we think they're not telling the same seven stories. Um, but really, we just read through them. And after we take in each script, we say, well, which of these can we envision the best being in our theater? Because if they can write one play that's like that, surely they can do another two. And why do you choose three playwrights, each creating two scripts? Why not mm -hmm. six playwrights? Uh, because we wanted to put a challenge to the playwrights that we select to have them create two different stories. Because writing one and spending all your time focused on one is a unique skill set. But to create two and split your passion into two scripts, that is a very different skill set, which I'm sure Kyle can tell you a little bit more about. Well, yes, you, Kyle, you were chosen as one of this year's playwrights. You have two plays called Monsters Anonymous and mm -hmm. Neverland. Tell us a little bit about them. I'm just a little annoyed at Adam that I had to jump through <laughs> extra hoops to be chosen this year. Um, my two plays, um, Monsters Anonymous, is about um, the classic Hollywood and some slightly newer movie monsters that are going through identity issues, dealing with maybe not being as scary as they once were, representational issues, um, their identities, and just trying to come to terms with who they are as individuals more so than just the character. And Neverland... Um, you know, it's, we deal with that thing of the seven stories. I, you know, I borrow rather liberally from certain people. In this case, the story of Peter Pan, but I set it in 1920s film noir times, trying to get that dark, gritty detective feel, which you can do a lot with creative lighting in mm -hmm. theater. And I just really try and hope the audience is entertained as much as possible. I was there for one of the read-throughs, which was really interesting to see that early 
but it wasn't that early I guess it was the second read through so it's already yes. gone through a couple of maybe changes but I'm wondering when you have those feedback sessions and people give you comments and actors read the parts is that how helpful is that how many changes do you make as a result of that well, the first step is to get over the immediate cringing pain of hearing your own words spoken out loud by people. And then you think you have this beautiful, solid gold line and the actors are tripping over it. And you just have to sit there and fight the urge to run to the bathroom and cry. But <laughs> no, a lot of it was very helpful. And the actors would come up and the first thing they show you is just this unbridled excitement over the characters. And that is more so what I take away. I'm like, they like them. They really like them. And then some editing has to happen. In this case, it was, they told me, rein it in. But in the arts, that's really what you want to hear is pull back. Don't do as much as you can. They tell you, pull back a little bit. Because you hate people to say, do more on the page. Try and do more. That's always painful to hear. Did you accept all the changes or did you overrule some of them? Oh, God. I, like, threw some of the, like, criticisms right back in their face. I was told, cut characters, um, change plot lines, remove whole scenes. And I was like, <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to show you that it can be done. And that's, I get in trouble quite a bit in life in general with writing, trying to circumvent the rules and try and bend them and in some cases break them, because that's part of what I study in creative writing is just how far the rules can be bent. Now, if I remember rightly, from the second, I think it was the second or third read-through I was at, you had already cut back, the, uh, maybe it was Monsters uh, Anonymous. It, one of them was really long, and you'd already cut a ton out to get to kind of the second yeah, reading. It was Neverland, yeah. That one, uh, first read-through, clocked in at 25 minutes for a 10-minute play. Because <laughs> I... Um, I'm one of those unfortunate writers who will just bleed onto the page in one just fit. The muse will strike and doesn't care what's left of you once it's on the page. And it was too much. And I was told, cut it back, think of time. And it that second draft then clocked it about 15 minutes. So I got better. So have you got it down to 10? Um, isn't, that, was, isn't that the limit? <laughs> Adam's think, nodding sagely. I think I was told that the final, they clocked in about 11 and a half, 12 minutes, um, but that was not not my fault on the page. It was uh, solemn pauses, a bit of blocking that took longer than it was thought to. Some things were changed. Um, so it's just, the actor's fault. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, will, I will blame the little puppets playing my characters more so than myself. And the director. Oh, no, too. no, 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 no. So, He's so, not allowed to blame. <laughs> John, you are directing one of the plays called Falling Time, yes. written by Hartley Wright, yes. who's also an alum from the very first year of the uh -huh. festival. So how um, are the directors involved in shaping the final version of the play? Well, it's really interesting. I've done this twice. And the first time I worked with Monica Hand as, and, and we made some changes as we got actors because it, it, was, a, it was a strange play. And we had to have it make more sense. So we worked through it with the actors. With Hartley's play, he has seen it once while we were while we were rehearsing. And we had just a couple questions for it. And we added one word. <laughs> and that's all. And Hartley just gave it up. It was ours to deal with. And so we made it what we needed to make it. There surely is a danger when you have you know, the playwright and it's brand new and it's their new baby and you're trying to direct it, that there's a temptation from the playwright to keep jumping in and saying, oh, oh maybe, maybe not. Uh, how, how much can you push back on that? Um, we didn't have a problem with it. We, we, there was one line that we had a hard time interpreting. 
and we wanted to change it. And Hartley said, and he finally gave us a clue as to how he thought it ought to be done, and it made the line. We just, we just, we didn't get it, and he talked about it to us, and then we went, oh, okay, we get it. And that was the only, that was the only thing that he, he didn't insist on, but he gave us a clue. The rest of it, nothing. So you just needed a line reading from the playwright himself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tell us about Falling Time. What is it about? It's, I call it a romantic tragedy. It's about two people who are 30-year-olds, and that's important in the, in the play. Uh, when I cast it, I had to look. It was hard because I couldn't take... I needed 30-year-olds and a man and a woman. And it's, a, it's about becoming the end of a relationship, an engagement that has gone wrong. I was again. I was there for the read through of that one, and it is has a a beautiful tension between two very sad people. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, given the prompt of win lose, it seems like it's a play where the outcome is lose lose. What do you perceive as the win? We don't know. We don't. <laughs> the beauty of the play is it ends on a certain note, and you don't know what happens after that. Hartley just Hartley just left a lot of things blank and we had to make our own backstory. I mean there is some degree of resolution because all plays need to end with some form of resolution but they they separate but we don't know there's a door left open. Spoilers. Yeah. Well, I think we kind of know. <laughs> Everyone come see the show. He's just kidding. <laughs> I'm curious if you remember what the line was that that had to be explained. Oh gosh. It, um Jeremy, the male character, quotes something that she said and then quotes it again. And it was just, it felt really awkward. And I can't remember the exact line. And they were, the lines were, both parts of the line were similar. And he told us that the emphasis shouldn't be on the first part of the line, but on the second part of the line. And that worked. And then it made sense. Yeah. Adam, how do you choose the directors? Is it an audition process like for actors? Uh, No, generally the playwrights are responsible for choosing the directors that they would like to have for their plays. If they don't know any directors, then we will step in and typically what we try to do and one of the best things about this festival is we give an opportunity for new directors and new actors that maybe haven't been on the Talking Horse stage before. This is a great opportunity for them to get that foot in the door. And John, did so you got to kind of choose which play you directed because Hartley invited you to direct it. Not exactly. We just sort of hooked up. <laughs> <laughs> Having listened to all of them, are there others that you think, oh, I would have liked to direct that one too? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really like both Hartley's plays and I would have been happy um, doing either one of them. But I, I really fell in love with this, with Falling Time, really fell in love with it. It is a beautiful play. Um, I was listening to an interview with a famous British playwright who was asked if he had acted, and he said only to a minor degree and that it, he was awful as an actor. Kyle, how much acting experience have you had, and do you prefer to write, or are you happy in both worlds? Um, I prefer writing because it's what I'm going to school for. Um, for those of you that went to CEC to see Noises Off, I was Tim. So I've done a bit of acting. That was my first and only show here in Columbia. I'm a transplant from Southern California originally, and I did stuff on and off there for a few years before I came out here. But no, I definitely prefer being 
on the other side. Although I would have loved to have um, taken a shot at Jeremy in Falling Time. That that part after seeing it on Wednesday would have. I'm just looking like, oh, I could do that one. <laughs> I'm I'm curious about the process of developing a script. Where do you start generally? Do you start with the, the characters or a plot or kind of an idea of dialogue? What's the uh, process for you? Very much in the model of Stephen King who says, what if? He just gives a generalized what if and then he just builds characters, puts them in a situation and then goes. I tried to model it after that. And in the actual writing process, I ignore stage directions. I ignore description. I just dialogue just vomits itself onto the page in very theatrical fashion and then I craft something out of that very gross Play-Doh. Do you have a lot of voices in your head all the time? Oh yes. Giving you plays? Oh, they're they're horrible little monsters and once they're done they say you're not good enough for those. <laughs> Why do you think Monsters Anonymous is about being comfortable with who you are? It's, it was cathartic to write that one. I, I really enjoyed reading um, Monsters Anonymous. I think that's going to get a great audience reaction. So when you start writing, the other question I have is do you know what the ending is going to be? I'm always surprised when I talk to novelists that most of them aren't sure what their characters are going to, where they're going to take them or how it's going to end. Do you know where what's going to end? Like, can plays be written in that same spirit of, well, let's just see where our characters take us? Um, these both were written very much in that model. I was kind of shooting for 10 pages, and that's why the both of them ran a little bit long, is I wasn't sure where to go with it. And I've sometimes had to change the scripts into a short story format, and that f- helps me find the ending. And then I transplant that back into the play. With um, Monsters Anonymous, honestly, I was like, I gave myself the benefit of the AA meeting format, which has to, it comes to an end. It naturally runs out of time. And I was like, we have new members, we need sponsors. That's a beautiful way. It bookended itself nicely. The original script was, it started with the beginning of the meeting with the big speech that got cut for, (laughs) oh, it took so long to read. Poor Lori was just running out of breath. And I just would have like she. I would have just had her have the script like on a clipboard or something, but that one beautifully bookended itself. And Neverland just talking with my director and getting feedback. The ending just kind of presented itself. With both of them having been written longer and then cut back. I mean, are you thinking that after this you might rewrite them as longer plays? I mean, obviously they had to be short for this particular festival, but it seems like you have a lot of extra work and ideas and voices invested in those scripts and that maybe they could be resurrected. Adam, can we have a full length be put on a talking horse? Hey, we always consider original works. It would not be the first time that we've put one up at Talking Horse. Um, I think there's especially in your Neverland play, that's something that we could adapt into a serial series. And yeah, we'd be more than happy to host that. Well, there you have it. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's on paper yet. Adam, tell us about this shorter writing format. If there was a reason you chose it. Well, so uh, again, the the idea behind the short play is that it's an art in itself. I mean, anybody can write a, a long epic play where you have just these ideas that just flow out of you and then you put it down on the page. What's really, really difficult is to take all of those ideas as, as they start flowing and to narrow it down into what is the core idea and how quickly can I tell that's so the audience can see it. 
Um, so the time format was to challenge playwrights into just getting the meat and the bones of the script. But also for the audience, if we let everybody do a half hour play, well, then the festival goes from an hour and a half to about four hours and that's an exhausting time for an audience but i mean you could do different plays each night so mm -hmm. as a festival i mean you are doing the same plays there are three performances tonight tomorrow and sunday right and there's some logistics behind it we've certainly discussed the idea of maybe spacing them out throughout the year but as of right now i think we just want to keep it to the six plays at 10 minutes each I think it's a good exercise. Kyle, do you, do you feel like it was a positive experience? Or are you just kind of like, oh, I can't stand that I had to cut my place so much? Oh, the 10-minute form? <laughs> yeah. It's grueling, but it's the same with flash fiction or the short story format in general. As Adam said, it's about synthesizing your thoughts into this concise, razor-sharp edge of a plot. And whether it's to entertain, you want them immediately off the first line laughing, or if it's a tragedy or it's a you know romantic tragedy, you want them feeling something within 10 minutes. And that is, that's tough. And I think that really, just that whole process is so much more of a good training process for writers than say a half hour format where you can, there's whole pages where you're just like, do I need this? No, every word counts in 10 minutes. Adam, I know you as an actor and director. Are you also a playwright? I have written before, but I don't have nearly the reverence or the skill set that our playwrights have uh, for this festival. It's always something that I've uh, tinkered with the idea of trying, but I'm real busy. <laughs> <laughs> John, what about you? Do you just direct or do you act and write too? I can't memorize lines anymore. So I, the directing of a short play is just perfect as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it is just so much fun. We've talked about three of the um, plays, but we haven't touched on our third playwright, <clears throat> Michaela Rogers, and her mm -hmm. two plays, Dependency and Things That Go Bump. I thought her plays were really well written, fast-paced and with great twists. Adam, give us a little uh -huh. flavor of those two plays. Yeah, so Dependency is a, a scene between two different sisters, and one of them is harboring a secret. And that secret, uh, once revealed, is something that's going to change both of their lives forever um, so I'm not going to tell more than that because you got to come and see the show uh, the other one things that go bump in the night starts off with a bet um, <laughs> can you spend a night alone in a graveyard and um, I believe it's Olivia right that Olivia takes this bet to see if she can spend a night in the graveyard alone and while she's out there uh, she discovers that she's not actually alone <laughs> So when you're rehearsing the plays, are you are you all there at the same time, all the directors, all of the playwrights, or do you take it in turns to have the theatre? I'm wondering if, as the process goes und gets underway, that a director might say, you know, I, I really actually feel more strongly about the other play, whether there's a possibility of switching plays partway through. Well, we Would definitely you? don't want them to switch plays. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can speak Rewrites. a little bit to that. Uh, so they actually don't get the theater until about the week of the festival. So he hogs it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's very, very crammed in. And it's a short rehearsal period. And then it's a very, very short technical period. So these guys have been working pretty much nonstop at the theater this week. And I'll let them tell a little bit of that. We practiced in my basement. Okay. And it was perfect because it, set, it, it did set a mood. I mean, it was an enclosed place, it was a room, and it really helped. When we got on the stage, 
it became different. It became different. Did because the stage, one of the things that, that uh, the, the play festival does is we don't have a lot of stuff. You can't build, you can't build six different sets. So we have six blocks, a table, chairs, a door. That's it. And you know that going into it. Do you tell them this is all you have on the stage? So they have to work around that. Okay. Yeah, that, so we don't necessarily say, here's what you've got. But the idea is that it's as minimal as possible. Okay, so if someone says, can I bring a plant with me? It's really crucial. You don't say, no, you can't have a plant. If they need a plant. I would always, anytime somebody asks me something like that, I say, well, how important is the plant to your set? <laughs> I know that Talking Horses 2020 season is emphasizing women in theatre with yes. all the productions written by female playwrights and featuring female-dominated casts. Now, these plays still come down slightly in favor of male actors. I think the tally comes in at 11 male roles and then nine female roles. Mm -hmm. So, Adam, why does theatre remain so adamantly male-dominated, given that at least at the local level, the balance of female to male actors definitely skews female, and I think so do the audiences mostly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's, that's a great point, and that's something that we are especially targeting next year. I think the difficulty becomes, if you look at our, our playwright makeup, we have two male playwrights to one female playwright. And in the submissions, I, I don't know the exact ratio, but we also had more male playwrights to female playwrights. And I think it really just boils down to the interests, what people are celebrated for. Um, if you look at the industry as a whole, more male playwrights are celebrated than female playwrights. And so I think that boils all the way down to a community level. Did you think about that when you were looking through the scripts that you wanted to find a more, a more or less a balance of female and male roles? So all the scripts are, you know, we don't like to hinder the playwrights in any way. So we didn't want to set up any type of regulation for you have to have a female lead character or you have to have more females than males uh, because that that might hamper their vision. Um so, no, we didn't put any regulations on that. Now, we have looked in, at the festival in previous years where we've tried to focus on let's have more female playwrights or let's have um, playwrights from the LGBTQ community. Uh, last year was a great example of that. Uh, this year, we, we just chose not to focus on that. So what happens to these plays once the festival is over? Um, hopefully they'll be turned into something longer or in the case of one of them serialized I've been talking to <laughs> uh, just kind of throwing my hat in another ring talking to Maplewood Barn about uh, radio shows because mm -hmm. they do that there and in a show of true solidarity Maplewood Barn actually let us borrow their mall rehearsal space which is, we didn't have a basement so we had that but I have a legit reason why I have so many men in my cast was I was there at the auditions for last year and there were only two male roles and there was a a massive surplus of men auditioning and I felt so bad for them because so many men walked away disappointed wanting to be a part of community theater and I thought I was going to have a similar situation this year when the exact opposite happened <laughs> and there I am just holding my script seeing a whole house full of talented young ladies and I have these scripts that have you also pretty balanced, though, aren't they? You've got 3-3, three, three, I think, in Monsters Anonymous, and I think 3-2 three, in... 3 yes. men and 2 women in Neverland. So yours are, yours are pretty balanced. Yeah, I, I think I did okay. <laughs> um, what about copywriting? Is that more trouble than it's worth, or do you? is there a process that you go through for that? Um, I'd have to talk to my fiancé about it, because apparently she immediately took my drafts, put the word copyright on it, put the little symbol on it, and that made it copyrighted, mm -hmm. apparently. 
I didn't know that because I'm not a technically in. It's the mail it to yourself trick. Yeah. <laughs> oh right, mail it to yourself. Yes, you're gonna yes. keep this stamp. Oh yeah, I dodged all the taxes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is coming up tonight. Before we close, Adam, there's a yeah. couple of other things coming up at Talking Horse. I just want to give a quick shout out to. Um, do you want to mention the antique? Carol. Yes, so Antique Carol is coming up opening the 5th of November for two weekends. That, of course, is Hugo Vianello's uh, comic opera in December. That's yeah. correct. Um, and that was a big hit when we did it in 2017, so we've added shows and we are revamping it for 2019. And also before then, the Stable Boys long form improv, improv troupe are back <laughs> with a special Thanksgiving edition on Saturday, November the 30th. That's right. And an evening called A Celebration of Awkward Family Fun. <laughs> that's right. They're going to create characters and scenes that'll have you thankfully for your own family <laughs> <laughs> and then amazingly they are back again with a holiday show just 10 days later that's right have they thought this through on Tuesday, December the 10th? Well, That's in traditional Stable Boys fashion, no. Uh, <laughs> no, but their holiday classic is always a lot of fun. They do an improvised Hallmark movie. And you have a meet and greet coming up to this coming Sunday when you will talk about the upcoming season. That's right. That's Sunday at 3 p.m. Check out our Facebook page for more information. Thank you, Adam. My second guest today have been Talking Horse Productions Artistic Director Adam Bretsky, Starting Gate New Play Festival Director John Bolton, and Festival Playwright Kyle Beckerdahl. You can see the Starting Gate New Play Festival featuring six brand new 10-minute plays at Talking Horse Theatre at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus it is a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are just $10. If you want to book tickets in advance, which is always advisable at Talking Horse, go to TalkingHorseProductions.org or give them a call at 573-607-1740. Thank you so much, Adam, John and Kyle. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars. Tonight, the Missouri Contemporary Ballet take to the stage at the Missouri Theatre for their 14th annual fall performance this year in a show called Dialed Out, which includes three world premieres and explores personal connections and the beauty of cultural diversity. The show starts at 7 tonight and tomorrow and tickets start at $28. At Talking Horse Theatre, as we just heard, the starting gate new Play Festival opens tonight. A chance to see six brand new 10-minute plays written by three local playwrights. If you missed the show tonight, you can also catch it tomorrow at 7.30 or there's a final 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $10. At Mizzou North, the Fashion Art Museum Experience Fundraiser starts at 5.30 with a Meet the Designers reception along with live music refreshments and a silent auction. Tickets are $50 and you can buy them on the door. Partial proceeds from the evening benefit the Museum of Art and Archaeology and the Missouri historic costume and textile collection. At the Columbia Art League, the opening reception for their final art show of the year called Sparkling Arts is from 6 to 8pm and that's free to attend. At the Boone History and Culture Centre, the opening reception for the 30th annual Columbia Weavers and Spinners uh, holiday extravaganza gets underway at 5.30. This weekend is the final chance to see the University of Missouri's production of The Wiz at the Rheinsberger Theatre. Evening performances are at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus it is a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets is $17. It's also the final weekend at Columbia Entertainment Company to see the musical Dream Girls. Showtime is 7.30 tonight and tomorrow plus there's a 2pm matinee on Sunday. It's always 7.30 and 2pm. And tickets are $14. The Como Comedy Club is hosting comedian Kyle Kinane at the Blue Note tonight. You might have seen him in season two of the stand-ups on Netflix. His show starts at 7 and reserved balcony tickets are $20. And in Jefferson City, Scene One Theatre has an evening of poetry, prose, music, skits and plays. 
Keys and a show of original performance art called Tales from the Rough Writers. There are performances tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 and tickets are $10. show continues next weekend. And bonus information, the show stars Columbia's own Monica Palmer. The 30th annual Columbia Weavers and Spinners Guild holiday exhibition is on at the Boone History and Culture Centre from 9 till 4 tomorrow, and that event is free to attend. At Daniel Boone Regional Library, they are hosting a local author's open house from 10 till 1 on Saturday. The second annual Art Swap is at Wildest World at 5pm on Saturday afternoon. Bring an artwork from your collection that no longer sparks joy and swap it for a work from someone else's collection. There's no cost involved. And Saturday evening at Rose Music Hall, KOPN's Real Deal Country Show and Roadhouse 56 present honky-tonk musician Pat Reedy and the long-time goners together with Paul Weber and the Scrappers. That all kicks off at 8pm and $6 gets you through the door. Sunday, the Columbia Weavers and Spinners Guild continues from 11 till 3 at the Boone History and Culture Centre. And at KOPN, there'll be a pop-up art show in the station's Great Room, organised by the Columbia Art League, featuring angelic art from local artists. And awards are announced at 4.30. Monday evening, storyteller, singer-songwriter and Shakespearean actor Andy Offutt Irwin is at the Daniel Boone Regional Library for a comic and heartwarming performance for adults. Andy is the recipient of seven Storytelling World Awards and his performance starts at 7 and it's free to attend. Tuesday evening, the Como Comedy Club welcomes Angela Johnson in a show called Technically Not Stalking. Tickets for Angela's show cost $35 and the show starts at 7. Wednesday evening, Skylark Bookshop is hosting Arta Weavers, which markets handcrafted fibre works made by women in villages and non-profit community groups from around the world. The evening is from 6 till 8pm and proceeds from all sales go back to support the women who made the crafts. At the Blue Note, Chicago's famed improv group, Second City, are on stage next Wednesday in a show called Greatest Hits Number 59. Tickets cost from $25 and the evening starts at 7. And the annual Dr. Carlos Perez Mason Memorial Concert hosted by the We Always Swing Jazz Series is at the Kimball Ballroom at Stevens College and features the percussionist vocalist Pedrito Martinez Group with special guest trombonist Conrad Herwig. Tickets start at $20 and the performance starts at 7 on Wednesday evening. And finally, Elise Passion, editor of a new anthology of poems called the Eloquent Poem is at Skylock Bookshop next Thursday at 6pm, along with some of the local poets who are included in the anthology. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.